I'd like to call your attention to John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is risen that he might give us everlasting life. And he speaks about that here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is God's word. There's all the difference in the world between living and existing. Medical technology can keep a person's life functions going for indefinitely, but a person who you know will never regain consciousness, but their life functions are continually going because of all the life support systems. Here's the question. Are they living? Is that living? I think most people would say that that's not living, that's a living death. Or another way to put it is, that person is existing but not alive. They're into mere existence. Now Jesus, in this wonderful promise, who says, Father, you have given me authority over all people that I might give the gift of eternal life. You know, as positive as that sounds, that's a, that's, a, that's a cut, that's a slam, that's an insult. Some gifts cannot be received without admitting something very wrong about yourself. I mean, if somebody comes to you for Christmas and says, I have this wonderful new gift and it's a great big bottle of mouthwash. What do you, you say, why, thank you. Now, if you say that, well, thank you for that wonderful gift. You're admitting something about yourself. As a matter of fact... You can't take it without admitting something about yourself. You cannot receive the gift of eternal life without seeing what an insult it is. Jesus Christ is saying here that in some sense you're dead. You wouldn't need life. But in what sense? Jesus says, the scripture says throughout, this passage says in particular, that apart from Jesus Christ, you're in a state of living death. That you are... Uh, if you are one of the majority of people who talks about life, the Bible says uh, what you call life isn't life at all but a living death. Now, if anybody right away rankles and says, oh my, what, what does that mean? I don't think I'm in a living death. What are you talking about? Just remember this. People who are in a state of living death wouldn't know they're in a state of living death or they wouldn't be in a state of living death. So if you want to be open-minded, which is one of the, the main things New Yorkers pride themselves on, you need to listen to what he says. Here's what Jesus teaches about eternal life. First of all, he teaches that it's the main thing that he has come to do. In fact, he shows us here that everything that he is and everything that he has said and everything that he has done has all been to this, this climax. It's all moved toward this. The version that I read you, this New International Version, in some ways 
hides that a little bit because it translates Jesus' first statement this way. Father, the hour... Uh, no, pardon me. It says in the New International, Father, the time has come. But what he actually says is, the hour has come. Now, as we've been moving through the Gospel of John, you might remember, if, you, if, you're, if you've been here for a long time, that Jesus constantly talks about his hour. There's a place in John 7 where he says, my hour has not yet come. There's a place in John 7 and in John 8 where the gospel writer says they wanted to kill him, but his hour had not yet come. In John 12, he says, Father, now has the hour come to glorify thy son. And then he says, my heart's faint. What shall I say? My spirit is troubled within me. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, for this hour I came. And there's another intriguing place in Luke 22 where Jesus turns to the people that are, that are persecuting him at the very end of his life, just before they're crucifying him, and he says to them, now is your hour, the power of darkness. What is all this? The hour, the word hour means, number one, that everything that Jesus has done has been moving toward this moment. This moment is the hour of his death. This is the hour of darkness, he says to the forces of darkness. You wanted me, now you're going to have me. At that hour, he was ripped from limb to limb. This is the reason why the Son of God himself cringed. He says, now, now my soul is troubled within me. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, Father, for this hour I have come. The hour means everything that is, is happened in Jesus' life. The emptying of himself, the coming to earth, the, death, the, the, uh, the life, the birth the ministry, the miracles, everything has moved toward this hour. And in this hour, he is slain. In this hour, the powers of darkness do with him what they want. In this hour, he seems to be defeated. And yet, here he says, in this hour, I'm glorified. He's scared to death of this hour because he's about to be decimated. Decimated. All of the justice that the evil and sin of this world deserves was poured out into his heart. The justice that all the evil and sin of this world deserves. I mean, it's molten stuff. It makes molten lava look like a cool soda. And that was all poured out into his heart. That's why even the Son of God himself said, I'm about to be decimated. This is the hour of the powers of darkness. And yet here in verse 1, 2, and 3, he says, this is the hour of my glory as well. Because as... He died, and as he seemingly was defeated, he triumphed. Because we know, and as we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, we know that at this minute, God was glorified because we see the glory of God's wisdom, how he was able to punish sins and yet save sinners at that point and at that spot. The moment of the defeat was the great triumph. In fact, you sang about it. Do you remember? You sang about it already. You sang to heaven. Hear the earth protest and tremble. See the stone removed with power. All hell's minions may assemble, but they cannot withstand his hour. Hmm. He has conquered. He has conquered. But why? And this is the thing that's pretty astonishing. You see, in this first verse, he says, the first sentence, Father, the time has come. The hour has come. I'm ready. For you granted me, authority over all people to give eternal life. Why is the hour? Why all this? Everything in Jesus' career is moving to this hour for one thing. To equip him to do one thing. To authorize him to do one thing. To give you eternal life. 
Now what does that mean? Simple before we move on. It means that this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. If we see here that Jesus is saying that the sum total, the climax, the point, the purpose of everything he ever did, of his coming to earth and his birth, his incarnation, his, his miracles, his ministry, his life, his death, if the sum total of everything he did was to give you eternal life, then if you don't have eternal life, you couldn't possibly be a Christian. I'll put it another way. The definition of a Christian is not one of quantity, it's one of essence and quality. I'll put it another way. What is a Christian? Somebody with eternal life. What is somebody who doesn't have eternal life? You're not a Christian. That's pretty blanket. But you see, the world likes to define Christianity and religion in many ways. The world wants to talk about Christ- wants to define Christianity intellectually. A Christian is somebody who has a certain value system and a belief system. Or they want to maybe define Christianity culturally. See, if you're a European background, that's a, you're a Christian. If you're an Asian background, maybe you're Buddhist or Confucianist. If you're Arabic background, you're Muslim. Other people want to define it institutionally. A Christian is somebody who's baptized, somebody who's a member of the church. But Jesus will not define Christianity intellectually or culturally or institutionally, but vitally. Anybody can see the difference. Any other, any other definition is inadequate. I was reading an interesting article about how the, in the 19th century, when Westerners began to penetrate China, what the Chinese thought of the Westerners. And the article said what was intriguing to the Chinese was, first of all, all the Westerners, the Europeans and the Americans, they were all Christians. And they built their churches and they, all, they wore crosses and they, and they said, we're Christians. So they called all the Westerners Christians. But there was a problem. And that was most of the Westerners were oppressive. Most of the Westerners were racist. Most of the Westerners were dishonest and double-dealing. And then there was this little group that came. And they lived very pure lives. And they, they sacrificed themselves to help other people. And they fed people. And they tried to help people who were sick. And, they, and they, they built chapels. And they tried to show people how to believe in Jesus. And they offered people Jesus. And they lived such lives of purity and service and love in Jesus' name. And this created a problem for the Chinese. Because if all these people are Christians, then what are these? See? And they had to come up with another name. And they had to come up with a name. And they called them Jesus people. Because they were actually like the Jesus that all the Christians believed. You see, even from the outside, even these Chinese people who had never really understood or heard anything about Christianity, the 19th century folks, even they could see the difference between people who define Christianity intellectually and culturally and institutionally versus the people who define Christianity vitally. The essence of being a Christian is eternal life. The most momentous question you can ask yourself is, Have I received a new order of life, a new dimension? Have I got eternal life or not? There is no more important question. Because, you see, everything Jesus has done, all of history, comes up to this hour so that Jesus can give you eternal life. That's the point of everything. So the first thing we learn here is there is nothing more important. There is nothing more critical. It's of the essence of being what it means to be a Christian. And Christianity is not defined in terms of intellect and morality. It's not defined in terms of quantity, but in terms of essence and quality and a change of essence and a new constitution engrafted into your being. Now, secondly, 
That's the importance of it. Secondly, we're taught here what this thing is. It's life. Now, how could Jesus insist that you need life when you feel like that you are alive? I mean, you know, why would he say you're dead? In what sense am I dead? And that's interesting. If you stop and think about it, there are several orders of life. And every order of life is fine for that level, but for the next level up, it's inadequate. See, for example, there's vegetable life, then there's animal life, then there's human life. Every one of those things is life. And they all have, of course, the same qualities that we define by life. There's sensation, there's growth, and so forth. You know, the cells do the same things. But the point is that though we would say this vegetable is alive, for an animal to be living at the, li- at the level of a vegetable would be, would be the, you know, the life of the, the vegetable is mere existence for the animal. And the life of the animal is mere existence for the human being. A human being living at an animal level or a vegetable level is just existing but not really living. Why? Here's the differences. For example, let's just look at this. In some ways, one of the main differences between higher orders of life from lower orders of life is in the area of sensation of reality, awareness of reality. Every piece of life, every, anything that's alive has to have sensation, but how much? The plant has sensation. That means the plant can sense temperature and a lot of things. But because the plant can't hear and smell, at least most of the plants can't, and they can't see as, as they, and hear, that means an object just inches away from the plant it has no sensation of. The plant has no sensation of most of reality. Now here we have an animal. Animals have the five senses. They, have, uh, they can see and touch, taste, hear, and smell. They have the five senses, and yet... So that they're aware of realities that are really there. Animals know all sorts of realities that are really there the plant can't be aware of. But human beings, though we have the senses of the animal, the animal cannot reflect, the animal cannot think, the animal cannot reason, and therefore the animal has no concept and no awareness of beauty and ugliness, of justice and injustice or tragedy, of joy or sorrow or of right or wrong. No awareness, no ability to sense. You see, they don't have this, it doesn't have the sensors. And all human beings know that those things are real. Joy and sorrow, hmm? justice and tragedy and injustice, right and wrong, beauty and ugliness. And if you ever find a human being that isn't aware of those things, that can't tell the difference, between justice and injustice and right and wrong has lost the sense of it. If you find a community of people, a group of people or an individual that has lost that, what do we have? We have somebody descending to a lower order. Everybody knows that you're descending to the animal level. You're existing, but you're not living. These aren't humans. You're losing your humanity. And so one area where the third, I mean, I'll give you one more example, but here's one characteristic of how each order of life differs from the other because of sensation. Each one is aware of more of reality. High orders of life see more, sense more, are aware of more. The other difference that I'll mention here, and keep the analogy going, is each order of life is different in terms of mastery. You see, plants and animals have no mastery. They don't know why they do what they do. They have no self-control. 
They have no ability to reflect on what they're doing and knowing what they're doing and acting in a free way. They react. There's instinct, there's drives, there's processes, you see, there's biological processes, it just happens. Of course, animals have a considerable more, you might say, self-control than a plant of reactions. On the other hand, human beings have got an awareness of who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. They don't just have drives, they don't just have instincts. But when you find a human being, and when you yourself have been in this condition where you feel that you don't have control, you've, there's drives, there's instincts, and they're pulling you along. You're just reacting, you're going through the mechanics, you're going through the motions, you don't know why you're doing, you don't feel like you're a free agent. You feel like, and rightly so, you're descending to a lower order. You have lost something. You're moving to a lower order of, of life and of humanity. So you see, vegetable, animal, human, each one has more understanding of reality, each one has more mastery, more self-control. Listen, Jesus Christ, when he says you need eternal life, he means that spiritually you're dead. He is saying that there's a fourth order of life, as much higher the third order as the third order is higher maybe than the second and the first. He is saying that there is a kind of living death that you're living in until you get eternal life. When Jesus gives you eternal life, what happens? Does that mean your IQ goes up? Some of us would like to believe that, and it doesn't. Does it mean your eyesight gets better, so you get another sense, a sixth sense? Suddenly you can say, there's something moving off to the right outside this wall. Is that what it means? <laughs> By the way, there are people who have thought that that's what eternal life means, but now listen. Eternal life means that you do now understand as much as an animal, if somehow you could turn an animal human, would say, unbelievable. I had no concept of joy and sorrow. I had no idea. I was a brute. So a person who becomes a Christian always thinks like this. A person who gets eternal life says, I was as uncomprehending of holiness, of love, of eternal life, of the righteousness that God gives, of adoption into his family, of the gift of salvation of heaven and hell. I was as uncomprehending of those things as an animal is uncomprehending of beauty and ugliness, of justice and tragedy. Because what happens without eternal life, the concepts of holiness and of righteousness, of heaven and hell, spiritual truths, spiritual realities, either are nonsense to a person without eternal life or they are simple abstractions. But they are not solidities. They're not, they're not realities. They don't affect you. They don't control you. You never act as if they're there. All the difference in the world, a person who becomes a Christian, a person who's received eternal life says, suddenly there is a whole new part of reality that I never saw. It never affected me. Those realities were never there. It's, it's like night and day. You sit down with a person who's not a Christian with eternal life. Somebody, let's say, who's come to church all of his or her life. Doesn't have eternal life. And they're facing a tremendous tr trouble and tragedy and, and, and some great crisis. I've tried this. I sit down with them as a pastor. And I say, you know, God is in charge. He's really there. He loves you so much that he gave his son. Now, I'm a pastor. I can get away with talking like this, you see. Uh, there's a, there's, this, this world is actually just an anteroom in a much bigger world. So you're going to live here 80 years. That's not very much. 
It's, it's, you know, it's just like the first two or three days of summer. When they're over, you really don't feel like you've even gotten into your real summer. And you see, the first 80 years of your life, you've hardly even gotten into your real life. You've got to see the bigger picture. And the person just stares. Why? Because you, you know what the person says? They say, of course I believe that. But, you know, how does that help? And that's the difference between a person who's living at the human level and who, a person who's living at the mere natural human level and the supernatural spiritual level, level. But you see, a Christian is somebody to whom these realities have become realities indeed. They've become no longer abstractions. They're not philosophical or academic things. They are realities. They're at the center of the being. They make a difference. It's, the truth becomes alive. The spiritual truths become alive. A Christian is somebody who says, oh my word, there's a God and it's my job to meet him. And he's going to care for me and someday he's going to judge the earth and everything's going to be set straight so I don't have to be bitter. And God's in charge so I don't have to worry. And when you come back to those realities, what happens is it just decimates your worry and it decimates your bitterness because they're real. You see, two objects can't, two real objects can't, as you know from physics class, they cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And therefore, if you know in a theoretical abstract way without the new order of eternal life, if you know that God's in charge, you can still worry like crazy. You can still be so anxious because you're losing your beauty, because you're losing your lover, because you're losing your job. You're decimated, you're devastated because it's all you've got. A Christian is somebody, however, who cannot bring the truth of the sovereignty of God into close connection with his or her worry without one pushing the other out because it's got a reality to it. A Christian, look, a Christian picks up a flower and looks at it differently than an animal, but also differently than a person without eternal life. An animal doesn't see it as a flower at all, just something to eat or something, or not eat. A human being with science picks it up and what, is it you see? what do you see? You see pistols and stamen and, and petals. But what does a Christian see? A Christian looks at a flower and says, my, my master created that. What kind of beauty must lurk in his heart that he could even think up something like this? And if this is the kind of beauty he bestows on a broken world, what is he going to give us when we're mended? And if this is the kind of beauty he's, he puts into an inanimate object, what kind of beauty must be lurking in his heart that in the end he is going to bestow on his child? It's going to break forth on me and it's going to break out into me. That's exactly how Jesus deals with the anxiety in Matthew 6. He says, look at the lilies of the field. Look how beautiful they are. They're nothing like you. You're his children. He says, if you consider this, if you consider this truth, this spiritual truth, it will wipe out your anxiety, he says. Because, you see, if you have eternal life, you see those things. They're real to you. They destroy your anxiety. They change you. They revolutionize the way in which you do things. They revolutionize the way you deal with your money. They revolutionize the way you, you're, you handle suffering. That's eternal life. All the difference in the world between someone who is sensed to doctrines and someone who sees them. Have you got eternal life? Have you got this higher order of being? Do you have this, not sixth sense, but this completely new dimension to your five senses? Are you able to be aware of spiritual truths like that? Let me give you the other test. Remember we said that high, the different orders of being are differentiated not only by sensation 
an awareness of more and more reality so that a Christian with eternal life sees all of reality. Whereas a human being without eternal life can basically only see what you touch, taste, hear, see, and smell. Basically, in a sense, only can see a smaller part of reality. We said the other differentiating factor was mastery. That an animal has much more self-control than a plant, which can almost completely just do biological reactions. But even an animal is basically driven, has drives and instincts. Then you have the human being. Listen, when you get eternal life, you are finally, finally a free agent, an individual. Your heart comes to you and says, if you tell the truth, you may lose your job. What are you going to do? If you don't have eternal life, remember, you've got a very, you have a smaller part of, of reality. Your reality is much smaller. And all you know is you've got your, your job, you've got your, your, your wealth, you've got your status, you've got your career. And what else have I got? I can't lose that. If I lose that, I lose everything. You don't know anything about the crown of glory and the truths of the word and the glory of God and the accolades of God and the smile of God. Those things aren't realities. They're abstractions. They're theories. Or they're nonsense. Either way, it's the same. It doesn't matter. You see, without eternal life, whether you believe in the basic creeds, whether there's a God and you believe in holiness and heaven and hell, or if you don't believe, it almost makes no difference. It doesn't affect you. You can't see it. You have no ability for it to be reality. And as a result of the lack of sensation of those things, you are controlled by this world. You're controlled by expert opinion. You're controlled by the culture. You're controlled by your peer group. This is all you've got. You can't lose that. But a Christian says, well, well, this is a pretty small part of the world. I've got a God who's really in charge. I'm going to live forever. I've got a truth by which I can judge expert opinion. A Christian is nobody's sheep. A Christian is not part of the herd. Never. A Christian develops a kind of freedom that is, brings you into the fullness of real humanity. A Christian is somebody who says, I'm free. I can get rid of this habit. I don't, have to be, I don't have to be controlled by what they think. I don't have to be controlled by this particular pressure because I've got God. I've got the crown. I've got, you see, all the things that, that, that uh, Paul was always saying. I want my crown, and I know it's coming. And as a result, everything else, every other kind of crown looks silly and stupid and, and expendable and perishable. You are never more free and more a master of yourself you never have more self-control. You never see yourself changing your bad habits and breaking those bad habits and feeling less and less like an animal and less and less like you're just driven by your instincts and more and more like a human being than when you have eternal life. Because you see, you were built for eternal life. Frankly, eternal life is the restoration and the completion of what a human being was supposed to be in the start, to start with. When you reconnect with Jesus... You finally become human. You see all of reality, not just a part. You become, in a sense, you have dominion over your environment, over your circumstances, instead of them running you and driving you and controlling you and cracking the whip over you. Friends, don't you see? Christianity is not a philosophical uh, view of the world, though it is. It's more than that. It has that, but that's not what it is in essence. It's not a moral code, though of course it has that, but that's not what it is in essence. It's a power. It's a life. You see, philosophers can give you moral codes and philosophers can give you 
codes of things to believe, but those things never have changed a village. They've never changed a life. I spent uh, an evening this week with a man who started a church out in Corona, Queens, in a very, fairly poor area. He's got five or six hundred people coming, and he's seen a lot of people get eternal life. And you know what he said was so amazing is he says the reason a lot of people were trapped in some of those poor areas of the city were for two reasons. One is, he says they had no belief that they were worthwhile people at all. They believed that they were just insignificant. They believed they were trash because they'd been told that by a lot of people. They did not believe they could make it. And secondly, they had habits. They had drives. They, had, they were in bondage to all sorts of habits and drives that kept them in poverty. He says when they get converted, the biggest problem he's got is he's got to keep them, he's got to keep them there. Because he says their, their families start to come together. They start to break those habits. They start to realize who they are in Christ. They begin to get a sense of their own greatness. They realize that I'm a son of the king. I was made in the image of the king. They begin to realize this sort of thing. And then he has to actually turn around and say, this has happened throughout history. That eternal life changes people and pulls them up out of the poverty. So that then you have to challenge them to stay put in the city. And try to be salt there. And try to be light there. But you see, can you imagine a philosophy book doing that to a family in Corona, Queens? Can you imagine a code of, a code of ethics doing that? Christianity is a power. The definition of a Christian is one not of quantity, but of quality and essence. Apart from Christ, your life's a living death. Well, just to conclude... If you look carefully at the, these five verses, you'll actually get an answer to the question, how do I receive eternal life? It's all in there. And there's just, I can just show you these things in terms of steps. Number one, in verse three it says, this is eternal life, to know you, the only and true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's all there. Look, first of all, you have to know the only and true God. This is very important for New Yorkers to hear. Jesus doesn't say that you can know God any old way you feel like. He says you have to know the only and true God. There's one God, there's a true God, there's all sorts of false gods, there's all sorts of false beliefs. There's a lot of people who say, well, I want to find God because I want to think of God in this way or this way. Now, you don't treat a person that way, you treat an object that way. If somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I like to think of you as a sort of having, you know, a sort of manic depressive. I like to think of you like that. <laughs> and you turn around and you say, I am not something that you have a right to think of any old way. I'm a person. If you want to know me, you've got to know me as I am. You've got to listen to me. You've got to find out who I really am. You can't just decide what you think about me. How dare you then say, I like to think of God as? How dare you treat God in a way that you wouldn't let anyone treat you? Now, what that means is, Jesus says, you have to find out what God says he is. And if you've got no church background, if you don't know much about the Christianity, I've been trying to tell you that, that to know Christianity inside out without eternal life, to adhere to the doctrines, to, to mention and say, oh yeah, I believe the Apostles' Creed, without eternal life, it's just a theory, it's an academic thing, it has no power in your life and you're not a Christian. But if you don't have doctrine, you see, though Christianity is more than doctrine, it's not less. You've got to know the only and true God. You've got to study the scripture. You've got to list, look at the creeds of the church. You've got to see who God reveals himself to be through the apostles and prophets. So you've got to start with doctrine. You've got to start with who he is. But here's the beautiful balance. 
So that's the first step. If you don't really even know what Christianity teaches, you've got to look. If you want eternal life, you've first got to start with the truth, right? But then secondly, Jesus doesn't say you've got to know about the only and true God. He says you've got to know the only and true God. See, there's a lot of people in this room that have to do this. You have to say, I see that I don't have eternal life. I don't know God personally. I believe in him in general. I, I've, I've always tried to adhere to a Christian moral code, though it's been harder and harder since I've been living in New York. But I, you know, at least you know, 7.5 of the commandments I keep regularly of the Ten Commandments. I try my best. You know, I move in that direction. But now you see, that's not enough. You don't just supposed, you're not supposed to know about the, the only and true God or to even know what he teaches. You're supposed to know him personally. And your step is going to be, if you want eternal life, is to go and say, Father, up to now, I've sort of known you afar off. I've thought of Christianity as a philosophy or an ethical system, but I need to know you personally. I need to pray to you. I need to, I need to know that you love me. I need to have you in my life. There has to be a personal day-in and day-out dealing. I have to sense that you're teaching me things, that you're with me. I want a personal relationship with you. That's how you get eternal life. You, if you know who the only and true God is, then you have to know the only and true God. And so the first step is the doctrine. The second step is now you have to know him personally. You have to go to him and say, I need that. I want that. I want that personal relationship. But then thirdly, You've got to know it through Jesus Christ whom he sent. Don't forget this. The whole reason you can have eternal life is the hour. The hour. If it wasn't for the hour, you couldn't have it. If anybody sits here and says, I come to, I've gone to worship services regularly all my life and I've lived a good life, and I say to you, that's great, but if you're, in, if you're trusting in those things, you're condemning yourself. Eternal life has to be a gift. Do you think a plant could want to be an animal? or even do it under its own effort. I mean, plants, a lower order of life, can't even know about the higher order of life unless someone from the higher order of life reaches down and pulls you up. And that means eternal life's a gift. You have to see only because of the hour, only because hell's dominions, hell, hell's minions all assembled could not face his mighty hour. That he died for you, that he paid the penalty for you. So. When you go to the only and true God and ask for a personal relationship, you do it on the basis of the fact that Jesus died for you and fulfilled all the requirements of the law. If you do that, you could walk out of here a different person than the one who walked in here. You can do that. Do you know that? Think about that. Because that's the essence of Christianity. That's what's so romantic and lyrical about Christianity. As a messenger of the new life, I can say to you, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. If you've been the nicest person in the world, you have just as much of a need of and just as much access to eternal life as the most violent person on the face of the earth. And if you're the most violent person on the face of the earth, I don't care. It doesn't matter what kind of things you've been in bondage to, here's mastery. It doesn't matter how blind you are, here's reality. You start now. Don't you see how Christianity cannot possibly be something you just decide to do? If anybody says, sure, I'm a Christian, I've decided to do it, I'm moving through it. To be a Christian means you sense that something from the outside has come in and grabbed you in the center of your being and it's dealing with you. And it's changing you. And it's gripped you. You know what it is? Friends, those of you who know this experience, you know what it is? It's your maker making you again. It's your creator recreating you. 
Christian friends, those of you who know you've got this internal life in your life, I want to know what you're doing with it. Every gardener, every farmer knows how to maintain vegetable life. You don't just leave it sit. I'm sorry, you don't plant tomatoes and say, well, in six months I'll go out and see what I got. <laughs> what about those of you who've asked for eternal life and that's pretty much what you've done? It takes a lot of work to maintain any level of life. Most of you know that even, you know, a lot of you are pretty good at maintaining your human level of life. You try to read, you try to jog, you try to keep fit. What about this one? It takes content, it takes effort. Some of you are frightened about the week that's to come. Remember how Peter was walking on the water when he was looking at Christ when he looked at the waves? He started to sink. Don't you see, if you've got eternal life, you've got a sight, you've got a vision, you've got an ability to see Christ why are you looking at the waves? Nobody else can see anything but the waves. Are you using the life you've got? Are you maintaining the life you've got? It's a personal thing. Remember, personal. That means it takes time to talk. The early church never had to go out and witness Christian friends. They never had to go out and witness. The world kept coming to them saying, what is going on inside of you? We see a reality we can't account for. What's going on here? Is anybody doing that about you? Look at your own self and say, I've got eternal life, but what, is it re revolutionizing me? Do I know how to maintain and build it up? Look at yourself and say, what's going on? And if it's not much, you need to go to him right now too because he is appointed, given authority over all people that he might grant eternal life. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we take a couple of moments to give ourselves to you. I pray that for my Christian friends here, people who believe and have eternal life, I pray that you would show them that many of the problems that they're suffering today is because they are not aware of the magnificence of the thing that dwells inside them. I know that, Father, there's people here who, who just uh, are refusing, in a sense, to remember that. They're not buoyant. They're, they, they're, they're cowed. They've got their tails between their legs. They're afraid of the week to come because they don't know what they've got. They don't see it. They're not maintaining it. They're not aware of it. I pray, the Lord, it would dawn on them. It would break over their, their hearts and their consciousnesses right now. Father, there's plenty of people always, every time you preach here, who need your eternal life because though they might not, they, they might know about the only and true God, they don't know you. And I pray that you would grant the gift of eternal life to everyone here, enabling them to believe and take it for you are the one, O Lord Jesus Christ, with the authority to give it. Now we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.